Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Diane Keaton, Hilary Duff, <laughs> Queen Latifah? Oh, oh yes, actually, I think you're right? right. I think you're right. All of them don't want you to hear this. Yeah, they do not want you to hear it. Because it's monkeys and playbills. Yay! And we're talking about Steve Martin's Bright Star. Oh, welcome everyone. I'm Jillian Willems. And I'm Paul DeGurse. Here we are in person again. So here we are. Here we are. We're talking about Bright Star. Yes, this is not a podcast about the state of public health and its effect on podcasting. Certainly not. No, it is actually a podcast about Broadway musicals that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today, like a couple episodes ago, Mm. we're not talking about a show that ran under 100 performances. In fact, we're talking about a show that ran just barely over. Barely. So technically, we would file this in our mini-series called The Ones That Got Away. And this one especially is one that just barely got away, Mm y'all. Okay, let's get into it. Previews began at the Court Theatre on February 25th. 2016. It opened on March 24th, 2016, and closed on June 26th, 2016, after 30 previews and 109 performances. And even that was only due to significant financial help mm-hmm. from its creators, including Steve Martin, including Edie Brickell, who is Steve Martin's co-writer in this, and including Paul Simon. <laughs> How does Paul Simon tie into all of this? You'll see in a second. <laughs> So let's give it a let's give it a shot. Oh my gosh. Bright Star is so cool. One of the things I love most about Bright Star is that it is not based on a movie mm-hmm. or a TV show. It's not a revival of a musical. It's not even based on a book or anything. Mm-mm. There was this is a real it's based on a real life event that occurred. This wild event where a baby was thrown from a train in a suitcase mm-hmm. and survived and was like saved and just became a person who lived a um, normal, fruitful life. Yeah, in another world, that would also be the beginning to the importance of being earnest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, I never thought we would find a connection there, but here we are. Yeah. Um, so they, this story was so crazy that um, like a, an American folk song was written about it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of floated around as American folk, so- folk songs do until it was picked up by... Noted bluegrass and folk artist Steve Martin, and I, I that's know. not even facetious. That's just a thing that we can say. But for some people, yeah. this might be their first right. like introduction to that fact. But we can get into that more later. Him and collaborator noted alt folk artist Edie Brickell, mm-hmm. who had been collaborating on an album, and they wrote a new folk song about this case. Sarah and the Iron Mountain Baby. I think that's correct. Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane and the Iron Mountain Baby. Yeah. They liked this story so much, they thought, let's elaborate on it pretty significantly and write a musical, an almost original musical, where a part of it is this story of the Iron Mountain Baby, a musical called Bright Star. So with that said, let's dive in. Oh my gosh. We start on a blank stage. That's not true. We start on a stage that has like a cabin. Yes. Thing in like it. An op- like a shed or something. Yeah, it's like a shed. Thing. You can kind yeah. of see there's a band in the shed. That's kind of yes, exciting. Love oh, that. cool. The pit band is on stage for this. And out comes Carmen Cusack. And oh, she sings. She sings 
the best song in the show, right off the top, in my opinion. Oh. Oh, this song is great. Maybe it's also because it's the first one I became aware of. Right, sure. Because um, this was the Tony Awards uh, yes, song. it is. But she sings, If You Knew My Story. This whole cast of people come out and the vocal arrangement is incredible and it's a rousing anthem. It doesn't actually tell us anything of what's going on mm-hmm. other than it establishes that Carmen Cusack here is going to be the main character. This is her story. Yes. And her character's name is Alice Murphy. Yes. So from there, you're going to have to help me out, Jill, because mm-hmm. we have two different timelines going yes. here. And I can recall both stories, but I can't always quite remember, I don't think, where they bounce back and forth. So if you knew my story takes place in present day. So we've which, got 1945. Correct. And 1925. So if you knew my story is 19, in the 1940s. Yeah, and, and we then stay we there. stay there. Yes. And then do we meet... Um, Billy Kane? We do. We meet Billy Kane. He's a young man. He's a young man. Um, <laughs> this song's got a lot of earworms. There's going to be a lot of bits. Yeah, totally. Here. Billy Kane has, a, um, has an I want song. He wants to be a writer. He's walking around. He's traveling through space and time. There's lots of cool stage movement to move us through space yeah. and time. And he finds his way to a newspaper. I think there's a little preamble, like he goes home to see his dad. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. meets we meet his friend. Margot, yep. Right? I think this all happens right before his I Want song. Yep, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So then I Want song. Now he's at the paper. He's at the paper where he meets a um, couple of editors of the paper, including Alice Murphy. Mm-hmm. And he says, I want to write for your paper. And Alice Murphy says, well, I don't know if you're a very good writer. So let's, <laughs> uh, let's slow down there for a second. Right, yeah. I think she actually buys one of his stories. Yes. And says, with significant work, this could be good. And then there's uh, a flashback. And then then Alice Murphy sings a song called Way Back in the Day. Yeah, that's it. And that it. takes us back to the 1920s. Yeah. Now we're in the 1920s and Alice Murphy's a young woman. She's a yep. teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and she meets a very charming Paul Nolan, who um, is playing uh, Jimmy Ray Dobbs. You might remember him from you such... Remember- Ones that got away as Escape to Margaritaville. Escape to Margaritaville. He was um, Jesus of Nazareth in the Canadian slash Broadway cast of Jesus Christ Superstar. Yep. Um, Canadian treasure, absurd voice, very charming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we meet him and he is, he's in love with Alice Murphy. They're kind of flirting and they're having a kind of a teen romance. Yep. And so this, seems, oh, this all seems very good. It's precious. It seems very sweet. But Alice Murphy's dad is grumpy. Oh, yeah. Because she, um, she doesn't listen. Black sheep, little lost lamb. I should have raised you with, a, with the back, back of my, my hand. hand. I should have hit you. Yeah. He's a, he's a douche. He's, he's that's a bad, no good. bad man. No good at all. Um, but Alice Murphy doesn't really take that too seriously. She's like, yeah. ah, dad. Ha ha. Ha ha. And it's a good thing because also uh, Jimmy Ray's dad is the mayor. Yes. And he's way grumpier. And you have to take that much seriously because he has much more power. He's very grumpy. So grumpy. What and is he has up? very patriarchal, misogynistic ideas about yep. gender roles. He sings a song called A Man's Gotta Do What a Man's Gotta Do. And a man's and gotta do man what he ought to. Oh, know. and it's that song's no good at all. And I also get the impression that Jimmy Ray's dad doesn't want him to be tied down because of he wants him to be a big. successful businessman, yeah. politician, whatever the case is. Exactly. Yeah. And thinks that if he has a relationship that he will not succeed. And then we go back to the present for a little bit. Billy's writing this story, writing these stories, and he's mm-hmm. kind of working. He's writing this story and he's forming a relationship with a woman named Margot. Yeah. Um, who's an old um, an old friend of his. Mm-hmm. And it's very cute. So we've got these two parallel love stories. And the um, female romantic um, lead from the 
love story in the 1920s is kind of this mom, older figure. And we don't know what's happening in that love story, but it's kind of watching over this mm-hmm. other love story happening. But then we go back to ni- the 1920s and uh, Alice and Jimmy Ray are by a pond or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're having a nice romantic time um, and they end up uh, sleeping together. Yes. And it's a very beautiful sequence. And we kind of stay there for we stay in the 1920s because mm-hmm. Alice starts to feel uh, queasy in her tummy. Yep. She goes to the doctor and it turns out she's pregnant. Yes. Her and, uh, her and Jimmy Ray are going to have a kid. This is in the 1920s, so this is pretty scandalous because they're teenagers. They're not married. Mm-hmm. So Alice gets scooped up and like taken to a retreat or something like that. Her parents like get yeah, her out of there. Something she's in, like, like a cabin that. somewhere. A cabin, yeah, somewhere remote. Yeah, but she's like real excited about the baby. Yes. She's like, this is going to be great. This feels really good. I and love he is Ray. too, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, I believe so. They're both into it. Yeah. But man, they're the two sets of parents are not. Yeah. So much so that when the baby is born, the mayor. Jimmy Ray's dad steals the baby, yep. puts it in a suitcase, gets on a train, and throws it off the train. Yep. End of act one. End of act one. So, we get to act two. Sun is gonna shine again. Sun is gonna shine again. The baby's dead, y'all, as far as we know. So act two, we're back in 1940s, yep. and things are like pretty good. Alice Murphy is um, feeling nice. Sun is gonna shine again is the name of the song, and what's happening is... Young Alice in the 1920s is going off to college and she's excited to start mm-hmm. her life as a, uh, as a journalist. And at the same time, Margot is singing about how much she uh, misses Billy and likes yeah. Billy in the 1940s. Because the big thing is that Billy has since moved to a town called Asheville, yes. which is where the journal that Alice edits is located. That's right. Yep. And so Margot is missing her friend slash person that she obviously loves because she hasn't yep. stopped talking about it. So then we're continuing to time jump back and forth. We settle in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jimmy Ray's dad, the mayor is sick. He's dying. Yes. And he's like, son, I got to tell you something. You thought that I put your baby up for adoption. I actually just took it and threw it out of a train. Um, and Jimmy Ray's like, are you kidding? That's like insane. I, Why would you do that? Well, Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. That is a uh, absurd thing to do. I'm going to go tell Alice. Wait, I can't. That's too horrible. That's a horrible thing you did. I can't bring myself to tell this woman I love who and our relationship's kind of degraded. I can't bring myself to do that. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're back in the 1940s. Yep. And this gets a little bit, believe it or not, now we're getting convoluted. Because now we're <laughs> in the 1940s and like Billy's written his story and it's really nice. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of missing Margot, so... His co-workers uh, take him out for a drink. Yes. And he ends up smooching one of them. Yeah. Even though he really likes Margot, he ends up smooching this woman named Lucy instead. Yeah, he got excited because yeah. like, he was like, oh, there's a dance number finally. Like, I feel like making out. So that happens. Um, Billy smooches Lucy. Um, they get drunk. They just want to make out a little bit. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. But once again, 1940s. So that's much more significant. Right. Alice is like, hey, congratulations, Billy. We're publishing your story. Also, I have some unfinished business. I'm really curious about this kid of mine. I'm going to go look for, like, the adoption papers. Mm-hmm. And she looks. She can't find them. Um, and she's like, oh, my God. What what happened? Mm-hmm. So she seeks out Jimmy Ray? Or just Jimmy Ray finds her? I think happens? she somehow tracks him down. Because I think what happened was at the, toward the end of their relationship, they knew where the other was headed. Like in yeah. terms of which town they were going to. And I think she probably just asked someone in the town. Because it was the 40s. Where does this person live? And then... So in the 1940s, <laughs> Alice meets up with... Older Alice meets up with older Billy Ray. Yeah. Jimmy Ray. Mm-hmm. And now we're done with the 1920s. Or we're going to go back there once. One more time. One more time. Yeah. Yeah. 
So she's like, what happened? Oh my God, it's good to see you. I love you. Right. Um, he's like, I love you too. I got to tell you something. My dad killed our baby. Yeah. It's a disaster. And they're very sad, naturally. That's no good. Yep. And then also happening right now is um, Billy and Margot are, have confessed their love to each other. That yeah. love story is developing very beautifully. It's very nice. Finally, Alice goes to her father and is like, what the hell? You killed my kid. Right. And he's like, I'm really sorry about that. That sucked. She's like, yeah. yeah, that did suck. He's like, okay. I feel deep shame. I yes. think he says something along yes. those lines. Yes, he, he, he says much more appropriate amount yeah. of shame than I expressed there for something as horrible as that. Which actually surprised me. Yeah. Well, that's right. And the dad doesn't even know that the, um, that the baby was killed. He didn't Just they know. didn't get given up for adoption. Yeah. While she's in Hayes Creek or wherever she is... I don't know if I maybe missed this, but I thought it was just like, let's just make one quick stop. You can meet my dad and then we'll go back to Asheville. Yeah. Like maybe we'll take the train home. So maybe it was like well, What's important is she ends up in Billy's childhood home. Yes. And ends up seeing like a sweater from when he was a baby. Yeah. And she's like, oh snap, that's the sweater I made for my kid. Yep. Wait, what, what, what? Billy is that baby. And then we flash back to 1920s one more time. Yeah. To um, old man Billy's dad, whatever his, uh, whatever his name yeah, is. Dad. Finding this know. suitcase <laughs> and finding a baby in it and being like, holy crap, this baby is still alive. Yeah. That got thrown from the train. And Billy has a hard time wrapping his head around this at first. Yeah, He's absolutely. kind of upset. But um, Alice is just over the moon. And finally, Billy's like, you know what? It's actually really cool. You're my mom. It's cool that we found each other. Yes. All is good. Jimmy Ray and Alice are like... We love each other. We're going to be together. And Margot and Billy find their way to each other as well. Everyone's in love. The end. So I'm going to read you the synopsis from from, uh, theatricalrights.com. Yes, please do. Bright Star tells a sweeping tale of love and redemption set against the rich backdrop of the American South in the 20s and 40s. When literary editor Alice Murphy meets a young soldier just home from World War II, he awakens her longing for the child she once lost. Haunted by their unique connection, Alice sets out on a journey to understand her past and what she finds has the power to transform both of their lives. What I like about that synopsis, that's actually a really good synopsis. Mm -hmm. What I like about it is that it hints very briefly at the twist. So much so that if you were familiar with the twist, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. If not, it's not going to tip you off. No, not at all. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. So the legend of the... um, what is it? The Stone Mountain Child? Sarah Jane and the Iron something. Iron, the Iron Mountain Child. Iron Mountain Baby. Because Iron Mountain was the name of the train. Yeah. All, all it is, is there was a baby. They threw the baby out of the train in a suitcase. The baby survived. What a miracle. That's the basis. Because it was a newspaper article. And like that was, uh, that was all they had. Yeah. And, and just the story of this right. man who it's like a miraculous story that he survived, but then he just had an average life and had a, had a nice life. Edie Brickell and Steve Martin elaborated on it a little bit yeah. with Sarah Jane, where it's like, geez, what, what's the deal with whoever this baby's mom was? That's a crazy story. Mm-hmm. And then elaborated on that a lot further, going so far as to make the mom the focal point of this entire story and yes. creating this whole story and this whole narrative. Mm-hmm. It's kind of bananas. It's an enormously... Especially for Steve Martin and Edie Brickell, who have never written a musical before. Steve Martin has... He's written one play before this. Would you like to talk a little bit about Steve Martin, <laughs> Julian Williams? I thought you'd never ask. I, I, was gonna, I, believe no. you, I believe you and Mr. Martin have a history. Is that correct? I wish. <laughs> so, 
I, like many a millennial, know Steve Martin mainly from the Father of the Bride movies and also kind of from the Pink Panther movies, but I never actually watched them. Slightly embarrassed to say, as someone who loves old SNL and all of Steve Martin's movies now, that I first became familiar with him with Father of the Bride and even Cheaper by the Dozen. Yes. First and foremost. Okay. So I... I've never watched a full episode of SNL in my entire life. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I'm going to murder you for saying that. Jeez. <laughs> I've never, like, top to bottom watched it. So, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Obviously seen best of this person and yeah. best of that. Because, you know, it's hard to, like, completely avoid SNL. No. You know, you can't course. really do that. It's like Drake. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I haven't really, yeah, I haven't seen a full episode. And so for the longest time, like, and by longest time, I mean until like two days ago, I thought Steve Martin was a cast member on it in early days. Really? Yeah. I literally thought because he he was in so many of them. And he's such a legend of those exactly, early days. That I was like, oh, he must have been a cast member early days, like Gilda, like all of that. That's so team. funny. Yeah. And he like, basically, he was like an honorary cast member. Right. But he was never on staff there. No. Correct. So... <laughs> All this to say, my experience with Steve Martin has been maybe sort of the backwards experience from a lot of people. I was going to say, so how'd you fall in love with him, if not that? Um, so Father of the Bride. Yeah, um, And then also um, his music. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So I was on a folk kick yeah. for a while around 2010. <laughs> And I got really into folk music and was trying to find everything I could. And I was re-listening to some music from my childhood that my dad liked. You know, we were listening to Tom Petty and Edie Brickell. And so in researching Edie Brickell again, going, oh, what's she been up to? I stumbled across this album, Love Has Come For You. Really? In 2012 with Steve Martin. And I was like, I can't believe it. How have I lived my entire life knowing Steve Martin and knowing Edie Brickell, but not knowing that they had made yeah. music together. And that like Steve Martin is, he's not just like a celebrity who dabbles in music. Mm-mm. He's an accomplished banjo player and he's got a real passion for bluegrass and folk music yes. and does it well. So that was my relationship with him. And I didn't That's... even realize, yeah, until like a couple days ago that he was never on SNL for So you're like, you're the target audience <laughs> for am. this musical. I totally am. Because this musical is composed by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. Yep. And... Once again, at first glance, you're like, oh, wow, that's what a bizarre vanity project. Totally. But it's Steve Martin comes to play as far as being a composer goes. Man. Exactly. So um, in terms of his career, like obviously he started doing stand-up and writing for a ton of TV shows. And then that kind of transitioned into, I mean, I got the impression that he focused on stand-up and then he was like, okay, I'll keep playing my music. But he he didn't seem to really like switch gears until a little later in life. Yeah. And it really wasn't, it seems like it wasn't until the mid to late 90s, not having the timeline in front of me, Mm -hmm. that he started to write a lot. Yeah, like a lot more. So anyway, that was my, (laughs) that was my like feelings about his. He's so interesting. And so he kind of embarks on this second stage of his career and reinvents himself. Yep. He only really does movies once every few years to kind of fund things. Totally. And they're not like super funny movies. They're like, I got paid $10 million to do. Yeah. Um, cheaper by the dozen. Yeah. So I'll take that money totally. to fund my passion, which is bluegrass music and writing. Yes. And art collection. And like, go for it. Great, it's fantastic. Yeah, like live your dream. I find it admirable rather than it being like, he signed on to Bright Star and it's kind of this stunt. Steve Martin's yes. writing it and him and like three ghostwriters hop on. 
by all accounts, he rolled up his sleeves mm-hmm. and for the three-year development process, he was the book writer and the composer and he got to work. Edie Brickell, his collaborator, <laughs> I don't have nearly as much to say. Do you know how they met? No. They're both pretty shy people, I think, in sure. social Does situations. Yeah. And he like leaned over to her and apparently was the only one to offer her the garlic crackers. And that was it. I That's was like, so huh, funny. cute. And then they were fast friends. Well, let me, let me tell you about Edie Brickell real quick. Edie Brickell is a folk musician who was popular in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. The band Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Mm-hmm. Quite nice, as you, um, as you said. Lots yep. of nice music. She's very skilled. The, she never, they never broke it like big, 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 mm-hmm. but have had a really nice career, very well respected. Yeah. And they were playing on, the New Bohemians were playing on SNL when Edie Brickell saw Paul Simon in the audience and like fell in love, true love at first sight. <gasps> And like, like she tells a story about how she fell head over heels and like forgot the words to the song. Oh and, um, my god! And so, and now, and they continue to be. Paul Simon and Edie Brickell are partners, are um, romantic partners, are together. Wow. Brickell and Martin write this album. They're like, this was so fun. We should write. I'm, we should write a musical. I'm not sure what yes. the impetus was. I can't find what the impetus was for them to tackle Broadway. But they decide, let's write a musical. They end up approaching a director named Walter Bobby, a very, very acclaimed Broadway director, and they're like. What are they going to do in this? We've written like a whole bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. They produce it. They produce this very early version at Vassar College. Yes, 2013. In 2013. And apparently it's just got a ton of music. It's like a bunch of the music from the album. They wrote a bunch more music. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, Walter Bobby, we think this could have legs. Would you be interested in coming aboard for the next step? And he's like, all right, I'll take a listen to it. He sees it. He takes a listen. And he's like, okay, this has like three times more songs than it needs. And <laughs> it's going to take like at least three years right. to write this. Steve Martin, you're a celebrity. Are you okay with this? And Steve Martin's like, yeah, let's do it. And so sure enough, three years, they do workshops in um, San Diego. Mm-hmm. They Where's the other workshop? Uh, Chicago? So San Diego, uh, they did a Kennedy Center, Kennedy Center in 2015. Yeah. yeah, and Kennedy Center's preview for Broadway. Mm-hmm. And then they do um, Broadway, Broadway previews, and they're still rewriting and cutting characters all the way up. Sure enough, it takes about three years of development. Mm-hmm. And finally, it opens. And reviews are great. And no one comes to see the show. They get to the point where uh, Steve Martin and Edie Brickell and Paul Simon are all pouring their own money into it to mm-hmm. keep it alive until the Tonys. With yep. the hope they'll get a Tony boost out of it. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin starts appearing randomly at the show during intermission. Mm-hmm. He'd come on and do like their like an entre act with the band where he would just play banjo. It was very frustrating though because Steve Martin would appear and the audience would go nuts. But he wouldn't tell the producers when he was going to come. Right. So they couldn't friggin' promote it. They had to get butts in seats. <laughs> it just was like So it was kind of this chance. thing of like, come see Bright Star every night for the week. And right. Steve Martin will probably be there once. And finally, it, um, it underperforms at the Tonys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in this absurd Tony year that we've talked about a few times now. Yep. And it posts closing and ends up closing just over 100. Like a 109. <sighs> and then the, the cherry on top of the cake is there now exists a junior version. Does there actually? <laughs> what on earth happens if they don't throw the baby out of the train? I don't know. I think it's probably just shorter. Premarital sex and baby killing are pretty essential parts of this story. I know. Right? But it's... That's so funny. Apparently there's a school version, so I don't know. I'd be interested to see what the changes would be. <laughs> well, that's all the context you need for this show. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your patience. Yeah. Generous audience. It's very fascinating. <laughs> a very deep dive into an obscure part of Broadway history. Is this show any good, though? Let's find out! 
Story by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. Book by Steve Martin. Music by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. Lyrics by Edie Brickell. <laughs> How many times can I say their names? Musical direction and vocal arrangements by Rob Berman. Uh, apparently has like conducted a lot. He's conducted a lot. His partner, I didn't realize this, this is a very um, deep cut, is oh. Brock Chase, who was the second choreographer on the Spider-Man musical. Whoa! Um, it was a very fascinating, very interesting, very bizarre career. Cool. And then the music was orchestrated by August Eriksman. Uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Orchestrated Come From Away. Yes, he did. And I think like the Gigi revival That's as well. That's correct as well. With Absolutely. Vanessa Hudgens. He's a really beautiful orchestrator. I first became aware of him because like when Come From Away was happening, mm-hmm. was first happening, um, you were seeing posts everywhere about the team and everything. Yeah. And it was this guy, August Eriksman, who's just coming off of beautiful work on Bright Star. Yes. And so he's kind of become known as the, like the folk bluegrass. He'll authentically mm-hmm. orchestrate yeah. these musical styles. So what do you want to start with? Should we start with the book or do you want to do music and lyrics? Let's do music and lyrics first. Good idea. So if someone told me that Steve Martin and alt folk uh, artist Edie Brickell, Paul Simon's partner, were going to write a musical together Mm -hmm. with virtually no help, no like touch up. They don't have freaking Tom Kitt or whoever um, actually like carrying the ball the rest of the way there. If someone told me that was going to happen, and it would be like one of my favorite post-2010 musicals, <laughs> I'd be like, bullshit. Yeah. But there's a lot of great in this musical. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is some, there is some bullshit. I'll, I'll preface that. But when it's good, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Like several songs, including If You Knew My Story, including the song Bright Star, especially like Asheville is a beautiful yes. song. Yes. Although so, if you knew the Asheville... From Love Has Come For You. I was going to bring this up, yeah. That one's better. I believe it. I have no... Lyrically. Some of these songs are songs that pre-exist, that exist already. They were just folk songs. It kind of works well because the way both Edie Brickell and Steve Martin write is kind of storytelling folk anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I got that impression a little bit sometimes. (laughs) Well, and you you would know better than I would. So there's that. Um, but it means that a song like uh, like Asheville, which yeah. existed outside of the musical, yeah. fits in just fine into the musical and is very beautiful. Absolutely. I think the other thing that's really wonderful about the music is that it is, as much as you think, oh, all these songs kind of sound the same, they actually really don't. They stylistically are very cohesive. I think the music really works well in that yeah. sense. Um, I agree. It's cohesive. It's beautiful. I think where the music doesn't work well Mm -hmm. is when it's clear that someone sat down and told Steve Martin and Ebrick, whether it was Walter Bobby or whoever, told them, okay, now you've got to write a song that accomplishes this action. Right. Now you've got to, we need a song where the dad and the son fight. We're going to start here. We need to end in this emotional state. Get us there. Especially egregious of of a, a song that doesn't work. Is the song um, that the mayor sings. The mayor and uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. have this song called A Man's Gotta Do. And it is a slog to even get oh through. The melody is kind of clunky and yes. doesn't really flow. The lyrics are obvious to the point of kind of almost cringe when I hear them. Yeah. And even where with most of this, the actual bluegrass style just has so much lift. And yes. it's so exciting and so beautiful and expansive. And it's two musicians who really know what they're doing. 
with this song and a few other songs, it just feels heavy and clunky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Ugh. Um, Couldn't agree more. So that would be my my big criticism is when it works, it's almost like a a Spring Awakening Duncan Sheik thing where yeah, it's a, totally. a pop songwriter who's been able to take the best parts of pop music yeah. and translate it to a musical theater context. And when it's at its worst, it tries to function as like a really... Um, a musical that's using the songs to move through action. Mm-hmm. And it's very obvious that the songwriters aren't comfortable doing that. Yes. Or just, ha- yeah, haven't had to do it before, so they just yeah. don't even know how. Yeah. I have a couple things that I noticed. One yeah. thing I noticed is that, and this is a very folky bluegrass way to end a song, yeah. but is to like, let it resolve yeah and it's over like it really slows down there's no build to the end of any of these songs no there's no big broadway finish which i'm not gonna lie i felt really ripped off by knew my story was a perfect opportunity to do that or sun is gonna shine again like i wanted bigger i wanted more absolutely and it's like am i supposed to be anticipating the next thing by breathing with you at the end of this song? Or am I supposed to clap for you now? Yeah. The history of and the execution of Broadway buttons is an extremely fascinating thing. And I would say it's a great call that that's one of the reasons I don't think this show was able to find more success Mm -hmm. with something as simple as people didn't know they were having a good time (laughs) because they didn't clap enough, you know? (laughs) So true. I just live for that. Right? Like I live for a sustained... A big old button. Absolutely. Eight bars at the end. Yeah. Uh, and I think actually, I, I shouldn't say we never get it because there might be that one song, like the 11 o'clock number in Act 2. I was thinking of the same. Yeah, I think we do get a Even bit of that. Even then, there. that doesn't quite end like you You're expect right. it to. You're right. But it's yeah. just Carmen Cusack is so good. Oh, yeah. That they're like, the audience is like, yep, that was it. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> but even I remember being surprised being like, it's not a big bump, arms out. Yes. Here I am, center stage. Exactly. Yeah. Rob Berman, the music director who does the vocal arrange and does the vocal arrangements. The vocal arrangements in this show are fantastic. Once mm-hmm. again, I find mm-hmm. myself calling back to Spring Awakening somehow yes. because yeah. of all these layered ins and outs, really intricate, beautiful vocal writing. Sus chords, left, right, and Absolutely. center. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> this music is made 30% better because of Rob Berman's work. Yeah. And that's not a shot against Steve Martin. That's a salut to uh, Rob Berman who does fantastic work. I agree. I agree completely. So... We both agree that Man's Gotta Do is like the literal worst song worst. in this musical, if not of the 2010s. Man's Gotta Do is in my bottom five. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So terrible song. And I think to myself when we, so you and I both did the same thing. We listened to the soundtrack. Yep. And then we also, after that, then watched the, the video, the bootleg. Absolutely. And so on first listen, I was like, oh, thank God that's over. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then like... A few songs later, there was this really cool percussive heartbeat fiddle thing. Might have been on a loop, who knows? But it was this really cool driving thing, and I was like, oh, this sounds amazing. I'm sounds so like a, into this. It sounds like a train. It sounded like a train mm-hmm. getting started, and then I was Doom. like, oh, it's Ooh. echoing. It's we must inside. Be, like, this must be like close to the end of Act 1 or the top of Act 2. That's yeah. where we are at this point. And then I'm like so into it for a minute and a half. And then all of a sudden it's like, a man's got to do it. And it's a reprise of a man's got to do. 
It's the end of Act One is a reprise of what a man's got to do. I was like, why would you do that to us? <laughs> you set it up beautifully. It's I don't so want funny. it. I don't. We don't <laughs> want that. Anyway, I was mad. Okay. Out of ten playbills. Uh huh. How many monkeys would you give the music and lyrics? Well, we didn't even talk about the lyrics. The lyrics are okay. It's I think they're terrible. Edie Raquel did not come to play as a lyricist as Mm-mm. hard as, um, as Steve Martin no. and her came to play as co-composers. Exactly. I cannot... No, I shouldn't say I cannot because I've just... I've never written a song before. Yeah. But I imagine the first song I write would be lyrically a lot like these ones, which is saying something. I give them a little more leeway than you do. The simplicity of them really work. They're all very simple. Mm-hmm. They're not trying for Sondheim-esque turns of phrases here or right. really fun um, rhyme schemes or anything. Mm-hmm. These are This is folk music through and through. It is, yeah. Um, when it works, something like If You Knew My Story mm-hmm. is when the, the melody is soaring enough yes. and the, the lyrics are simple and so it hits you in the heart because mm-hmm. they're so simple. Yeah. When it doesn't work, though, it really doesn't work when the melody isn't soaring in enough. Or the, um, the music isn't good enough to carry those lyrics into your heart. Yeah. And I think it yeah. goes hand in hand with that thing you were talking about before where it's like to, to capture a feeling, it's very successful yep. because, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated. Yep. But in terms of an action song, yeah. like you need to get me from A to B. And with these lyrics, I'm getting from A to A again. Yeah, Just exactly. Circles. Just circles. Especially when... We're in the 1920s and the dads are addressing their kids, whether it's right. uh, Alice's dad talking to her. As long as it's someone expressing their feelings mm-hmm. to the audience or like a love song to each other, it's grand. Yep. When it's like, I'm upset, let me tell you why. You're with that guy. And that sucks. Banjo, banjo, banjo. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that was an actual lyric, right? A man's got to do. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Okay, so that we've addressed that, that's very important to say. I'm glad we did that. Yes. In that case, considering the music out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys would you give it? Um, if it was just the music, yep. no lyrics, <laughs> it would be like an eight and a half for me mm-hmm. because I love, love, love this style of music. Yeah. But oh, because of the lyrics, I feel like it's a seven. Yeah. You know, somehow I just got done really talking about the music and how much I like it. I was going to say I have trouble even going that high, but no. Seven feels good. Well, yeah, because like the arrangements were really good The arrangements good are and clean brilliant. And the arrangements yeah. are awesome. And that deserves to be recognized. Yeah. Um, and like I said, Steve Martin, he's not a celebrity who is like picking his nose and trying to fart out a musical. That's right. They worked on this. Exactly. And that work is obvious. Yeah. Absolutely. Yay. Okay. The book. Steve Martin on his own, flying solo, writing a book. So your um uh, your synopsis. Yep. Uh, you mentioned that it sounded convoluted. Yeah. And it could very easily feel that way. However, mm-hmm. I think he crafted it so beautifully. <laughs> he really did. I was not confused. I was never confused. There was never a moment where I was like, yeah. "What year is this? Who is talking to whom?" Like I got it. I was with them. It's confusing to describe. Yeah. But the summary is actually. In the 1920s, uh, two teenagers fall in love, mm-hmm. have a kid. Their parents don't approve. So one of the parents secretly tries to kill the kid. The kid mm-hmm. miraculously survives. And 20 years later, by coincidence, ends up working for what he doesn't realize is his mom. Yep. They find out 
and everyone is reunited. Yeah. Right. It's a very straightforward It is backstory. very straightforward. Yeah. And yeah, it's just they, they clearly plotted it really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I don't have, a, honestly, very many bad things to say about the book. I enjoyed it. Neither do I. I um, It maybe gets a little draggy in the second act. Yeah, because, you know, they're trying to make it long. <laughs> I think I think there might even be a one act in here that's more charming. Ooh, maybe that's the school version. Yeah, I, I would do the school version then in yeah, a second. Junior. Like there's some stuff in act two that's got to go. We Small, know bright star. Small, bright star. <laughs> Young, bright star. <laughs> what is it? Bright dwarf star? Yeah. Bright dwarf star. Yes, Daphne. Who is that? Was that producer Daphne <laughs> on the board? <laughs> Producer Daphne doesn't have a mic today, but she's here, y'all. Don't Yay. you worry. <laughs> yeah. Making quips left and right. Did not leave us alone. Nope. Could not be trusted. <laughs> not, that would be a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what? I just love Steve Martin, and I just pictured him writing everything as I was listening to it, which made me love it so much. There's a great Steve Martin joke in the first act. Oh, which one? Where Billy's written an article, and he brings it to the paper, and he's like, what'd you think of it? And one of the editors is like, it was extraordinary. And the guy's, the Billy's like, really? That's great. And uh, the editor's like, sorry, I spoke too fast. It's extraordinary. Yes! And I was like, oh, that's a classic Steve that's Martin joke. It's such a joke. dad joke. It's such a dad joke. Also, I learned about Steve Martin that he um, only became a dad for the first time in 2012. No kidding. So he was like 66 or 67 when he had wow. his first kid. Wow. So he was not father of the bride for a long time. No. He was not cheaper by the dozen. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, no, I... I agree. It's a nice book. I enjoy yeah, the book. Absolutely. I think you're right. It would be great as a one act. Yeah. And then when I was watching the production, yeah. the music was made better absolutely. by this book. 300%. Yeah. I think by this book and by, we'll get to it next but by really smart direction and choreo. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I watched this show and I had a grand old time. Yeah. I would say for the first time, my enjoyment of the show was increased by a good 30 to 40%. Because mm -hmm. you usually, and I, mean, I think that's probably more the case for a lot of people, but I usually, um, I'm listening to the music and I'm really, uh, I view everything through a music lens so hard right. that my opinion that's based off listening to a show is usually pretty close to where it's going to land. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that wasn't the case with this one. Not at Man. all. Should we mark this book? Yeah. Okay, Paul. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving Steve Martin's book? See, after saying all that, I think it's just going to be a seven. Oh, all right. Like I can compare it to like some of the Pulitzer Prize winning sure. musicals and books from yeah. that we've gotten. This is, it's not outstanding. Let's not right. be, like, there's no great, this is not Tony Kushner. You know what I right. mean? We're yeah, still, yeah. it's functional. I wouldn't have guessed it was Steve Martin. I would have guessed it's like a functional hired gun who yeah. put together a good book. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I'd say seven. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little higher though. Yeah, where, where's your head? I'm an eight. Because yeah. again, I picture him. When I hear everything. Right, and you and like it, it quite a bit. I just am charmed. Yeah. It's such an yeah. interesting choice because you would think even if Steve Martin was going to write it, it would be more like a Steve Martin movie. Right. And it's not. It's just they decided yeah. to just write this story based <laughs> off a folk song. It's, what a fascinating choice. Ugh. Oh. Yeah, good yeah, job. Yeah, I agree. Should we... I really want to. Direction and choreo. We're so excited. Direction and choreo. <laughs> Thank you.
directed by Walter Bobby. You have probably heard of Walter Bobby, yep. but you probably, like me, couldn't place him. I was watching this and I'm like, geez, who's the director? It seems like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. I wonder what else he's directed. And then I looked and it up. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. So what has Walter Bobby done? So he uh, was an actor. So he did the original production of Grease in the 70s. And he, he did that for eight years. He was in Chicago. Before that, really fascinating. He's in the, um, the 92 Guys in yes. Dolls Revival doing Nicely Nicely. Such a good production. That's so fascinating. And I think there's video of him singing Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat That's on so YouTube. That's so funny. I mean, just an incredible yeah. director, performer, um, very intelligent yeah. in terms of um, his knowledge and also his... The length of his career, I think, is very, um, it translates beautifully, but he, we can talk about that more He later. directs and does the stage adaptation for Footloose, which That's is a right. really smart stage adaptation. I love his resume. Um, it was choreographed by Josh Rhodes, who did the choreo for Cinderella in I 2013. I saw that as well, right? And I wasn't surprised um, when I found that out after watching this. Neither was I. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the associate director was Andrew Britt, and then the associate choreographer was Lee Wilkins. Let me preface this first. I don't know what your opinion is, so I'm going to express mm -hmm. my opinions, and we'll see if we're going to have a fight. Yep. <laughs> um, but this is, in my opinion, the best example I've seen of strong direction in choreo, and I think both the direction and choreo were very strong here. Mm -hmm. I like Josh Rhodes' choreography a lot, mm -hmm. but it kind of is shooting for the cheap seats, and I'll acknowledge when it comes to choreography, I am absolutely in the cheap seats. And so <laughs> as I was watching it, I'm like... I get a kick out of this because it's tricks and it's, mm -hmm. um, or not even tricks, but like choreography tricks yeah. rather than flips. Right. But I bet Jill's going to have a different take on this. I... What's your take on the choreo? Okay. I thought it was very appropriate. Yep. Like I thought it was smart in that way. I thought that there was that nice mix of we are a group of people that all know the same routine and we're having yep. fun doing mm -hmm. it versus, oh, here we are embodying the feeling of this scene as mm -hmm. the ensemble, which I love. I yep. love all that. And the ensemble's in play a lot. <laughs> they are. And I, yep. that's my favorite thing, yep. I think. In a very Spring it. Awakening way. It's kept on, yes. kept on coming back. Like, how is Bright Star so similar to the original Spring Awakening production? Now that you're saying that, I wonder... Because Josh Rhodes would have been maybe probably late 20s yeah. or early 30s. We just looked at his resume. He would have been still performing at that point. Yeah, I Broadway. think so. Or yeah. at least starting to make that transition from performer to assistant choreographer. Because that was drowsy time. And I think they're yeah. around the same time. They absolutely are. So it is possible that he would have seen Spring Awakening and been like inspired by Bill T. Jones's movement. Like, Just like it was very clear that um, Rob Berman was uh, um, influenced by uh, by the vocal arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's unreasonable to assume that. Okay, the other thing that I like, and this might get into a bit of the direction too, was it felt as though Walter Bobby and, and Josh Rhodes were like two people but sharing the same brain, which is such a beautiful thing to see come to fruition in this way. Like, it was... It was a beautifully done staging slash choreo mix of things. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Absolutely. And I like not knowing where one ends and the other begins. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly 
what I liked as well. That's mm-hmm. um, we're on the same page here. It's very obvious it was a very functional team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to call out the staging specifically even more than the choreo. Yep. Um, there's some brilliant staging moments, whether that's Walter Bobby or whether Walter and Josh um, deserve co-credit on that. Yep. If I had to guess, because this team seems so functional, it probably was a collaborative I would guess, um, yeah. work all around. To call out the design a little bit before we get there, because mm-hmm. uh, it relates to this. They're, the main set piece is this big platform that the yep. band is on, but it has a big, pretty big plane area in the front, but it can be moved freely around the stage, which I is love it. awesome. They've yep. done some, figured out some way to provide power to the band um, while still having the platform move freely around the stage. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of sequences that are not quite choreo, but their staging choreo yeah. comes in and out, but they're just brilliant. The Bright Star song, which is Billy's I Want song, and it's give the illusion of traveling. They just keep on friggin' moving this platform everywhere. And it just, it's so functional and so good and gives so much momentum to the song. Mm -hmm. The ensemble work in that song is so great. It's awesome. The choreo. It's it's very pedestrian, which I love. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. like you watch anything we've done together and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a Jill thing. Like she loves it. (laughs) In that sense as well, the opening number, um, if you knew my story, where they Mm -hmm. virtually don't move at all. Yep. But man, it's a functional opening number because the movement they do do is uh, strong, is powerful, yep. and serves the uh, this kind of opening prologue so well. Mm-hmm. We've got passengers and you kind of seem like they're maybe on a train. You can't tell and they're moving in slow yeah. motion. And then they hit a beat where the song proper starts. Yeah. And they all jolt like they've been on a train. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's so fucking good. I love it. It is so fucking good. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> um, it filled me with the joy of theater like I haven't been filled with her in a long time. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I, I wish I could it. have been there in person, you know? Absolutely. Yep. Should I talk about the curtain call? <laughs> I have a surprise for Paul. So, Paul, <laughs> tell tell everyone what you did as yeah. soon as, like, the final button happened. The final button of the show happens. I go, all right. That was a nice show. I've got my notes. I'm ready for the podcast tomorrow. I've done some research. Sounds good. I'm going to watch Drag Race now. Yeah. And I turned off <laughs> Bright Star. With like probably six minutes left. Six minutes left. Yeah. But that's button this wrapped up. Everyone's in love. Yeah. That was Bright Star. Thank you very much. Right. I get here not an hour ago. <laughs> I get to recording. So I, unlike Paul, decided to watch to the very end. And I am so glad I did because I had heard rumors that um, <laughs> Steve Martin and Edie Brickell would show up. No, because I knew Steve Martin appeared at intermission, so I watched the intermission. Okay. And he didn't show up. No, so they—I guess that day just showed up at the end of what? the performance and came up for the curtain call. Oh, well, okay. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Hey, that guy's wearing. Why is he wearing a linen suit? There's no one's been wearing linen this whole show." And then I was like, "Oh, that's Steve Martin." What the heck? Whoa, there's Edie Brickell. I was like, is that the vocal arranger? Like, it was like the whole The whole team? team. Was it closing night? Well, and then I was like, was it closing? Because then I saw some bouquets, but then I was like, those look fake. I don't know. It was very confusing. Very interesting. Yeah. So they did like a full clap along singing curtain call, whatever they decided to reprise. I can't even remember. Like one of the the songs from the show. Yeah, it was, I think, a song from the show. I couldn't hear because everyone was screaming and clapping. That's funny. Yeah. And so they were there for like the whole last like five minutes of the movie. What? Yeah. Doing various things like 
it, you know, showing off the band, clapping for the band, yeah. taking bows awkwardly. Yeah. I've got to go back and watch it. You should just watch the last couple minutes. I will. That's so it's funny. It's very strange. I had no idea. Yeah. So I felt weird about that. Very. Will that factor into your rating? Um, <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. Very good. Yep. For the rating. So that will be ignored in the rating. We'll be considering the direction in the choreo, but not Until Steve the Martin's final button execution of the, song. Of, yeah. the of the choreo. <laughs> That's it. That's all I want. Okay, the only thing I'll say is that there was some weird lantern acting, which I'm not, I wasn't sure. super sold on. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't really understand it. It just looked silly from our perspective, but I think maybe in person it wouldn't have been as weird. Fair enough. Yeah. One thing I was going to shout out was I think Carmen Cusack was really charming, has a charming kind of gangly way of executing this choreo. Mm -hmm. um, and if I forget to mention it when we talk about performances and I'm gushing over her, then yeah. I mentioned it now. <laughs> <laughs> so out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give the direction and choreo? And I think we should put them together because they were yep. very much a unit. Oh hell, nine. Yep, same. Woo! Play the music. Ding, Look ding, at that. Ding, 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 that ding, ding. That music was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Really excellent work. Yeah. Fantastic. There can, there's a lot to be like, oh, this show didn't have a lot of tech. Why are you paying Broadway money for a show that's not like mm -hmm. Phantom of the Opera or whatever? Mm -hmm. That's why. Yeah. There's some real deal artistry on the play display right there. Yeah. There's some mastery of the craft. Really nicely done. Absolutely. Yeah. What does this show look like? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Scenic design by Eugene Lee, who's done, oh, I don't know, Wicked... Merrily We Roll Along. A little show. Maybe you've Just heard of it. Just a little flop. Dude. Dude. <laughs> Favorite musical of the podcast, Dude. The sandiest, dirtiest musical. Absolutely. With the trees. I think he was like a young hippie when he did it, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. That would check. That would He's check grown out. a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> costume design by Jane Greenwood. And I yeah. have to tell you, I look at everyone's IBDB page yeah. when we're doing this, you know, to see yeah. what they've done. And I was scrolling to try to find Jane Greenwood's first yeah. credit. And I kept scrolling and scrolling really? past 140 Broadway credits wow, as a wow, costume designer. Wow. Yeah, 140. I couldn't believe it. That's absurd. Absurd. Yeah. So um, she does a lot of plays. So tons of costuming for plays. But, you know, the occasional musical here and there. So she did She Loves Me in, I think it was the revival or the second revival. And then uh, Million Dollar Quartet. A career starting in 1963. Yeah. Just goes on and on and on. Wow. 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 Yeah. So yay, Jane Greenwood. Lighting and design. still playing. I'm yep, so sorry. Still going. Still, yep. she's got credit. She's booked into 2022. Yep. Jeez. Yep. Good for her. It's yep. pretty incredible. Lighting design by Jaffe Weidman. Nice. Who did lighting for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Sure. And also Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. Which is some pretty neat lighting, actually. Yeah. I really liked it. And there's good work in this as well. Mm -hmm. There's nice lighting in this. Sound design by Nevin Steinberg um, from Hamilton. And I'm very excited because... <gasps> The boot that we watched is actually a really nice boot. It's a good, yeah. I feel it's ready to talk clear. about the sound design. Yes. Yeah. So um, Nevin Steinberg did Hamilton, Hadestown, yeah. and then most recently the Tina Turner musical. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hair and wig design by Tom Watson from Wicked and the Into the Woods revival. And then makeup design by Tommy Kurtzman, who did the Fiddler revival and also the prosthetics and makeup for Mrs. Doubtfire. 
Is now, now that we've mentioned rig design, is now the time to um, now is mention the time. it? Now is the time. Dear idol of the podcast, Paul Huntley passed away. Legend of both Broadway and of uh, and of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, did a ton of wig design for any movie that was uh, shooting in New York. Yep. Um, as well as for Broadway. Uh, legend. We've talked about him several times on this podcast. Yes. Passed away, and it's worth taking time on our little our little piece of the uh, North American entertainment scene here to uh, <laughs> raise a glass and say, Paul Huntley, you were a legend. Excellent work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you gave us. He didn't work on this, though. Yeah. No. <laughs> he did not work on this, and he also no. did not know us. Yes, and also we had no, no connection whatsoever yeah. to him. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the design. You've mentioned the um, sort of shack thing that's on yeah. wheels. And it's awesome. It's I, I've tried to do this in shows a couple of times, mm-hmm. most... Um, most significantly, on the show we worked on together on Charlie Brown, yeah, we wanted me on this kind of platform playing piano because it <laughs> it takes a pretty significant amount of technical consideration, right, to be totally wireless on a platform. They do it so well here. Oh, it's a five yeah. five piece band, excellent five piece band, like two I guitars, bass, drum. I think it drums. was nine pieces. You're you're probably right, and they sound great. And there's several times when they're they're being spun around the stage. Mm-hmm. It's so tactile. It's so real. Yep. It's because it's this folk, these folk instruments, obviously they're amplified because we're in a Broadway theater, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing that's being played that needs to be amplified. Yep. So you get the feeling that this is just a, a living room band. Oh, totally. And it's the set design serves the sound design in Mm -hmm. a really nice way. So yeah, I couldn't, uh, I can't say enough good things, obviously, about the moving platform, which is kind of the main set piece. Yeah. What else no, is there? I'm a, I'm a fan as well. Yeah. There were a couple like smaller pieces, you know, yep. a bookshelf here and a desk there, right. but they were always moved by cast, and then they were always interacted with, which mm-hmm. is the literal best yeah. because then you're like, oh, every set piece has a reason for being there, yeah. and every person has a reason for moving it, and yeah. it just it all worked so well together. There's a great moment. Usually when you're trying to do a car and you don't want to actually build a car, mm-hmm. you'll bring in like a steering wheel mechanism yeah. to like sit on the ground. Right. And it's fine. And, and sometimes like whatever. it looks kind of goofy. Yeah. In this one, they sat their two characters down who were going to be driving in the car and they just gave the one guy a steering wheel not attached to anything. Yeah. And he held it in front of him. And that was it. And it looked awesome. It looked so it good. It looked so good. It was way better than the car in Bonnie and Clyde. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a fan. I also really liked um, the wigs. Yeah. I noticed the wigs. Did you actually? I didn't I notice did. the wigs. That's so cool. I did, and I normally cruel. don't, but I, I yeah. really noticed them. And the costumes as well, like yeah. very clean, very... Mm-hmm. Like that that moment where um, Alice changes on stage. Yeah. When the, the first time we're traveling back in time. Yes. Um, she goes from being her newspaper editor to a much more simple kind of teenager yeah. dress. And it's the cast. She's walking through and singing this song. Cast members are stripping clothes off of her. And you're like, what's going on? Are we going to do a quick change on stage? Or what is this? And it's just underneath. She's got a much more simple dress. And it works really well. Yeah. It's so good. So I love that. Nice lighting design. Yeah. Really simple. Yeah. Very beautiful. Simple, but not subtle. Right. When things are sad or angry, the lighting tells you. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's some some moments where we're in shadow and we're dark Mm. and we're casting those shadows everywhere. We're on the train 
and it is very obvious that this is yeah. a heightened version of reality and not necessarily going for naturalism. Yeah, and you get a really good idea of yeah. those uh, lighting choices in the photos. Like if you look at production photos, you can mm -hmm. see the really smart lighting choices in Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, a great sound design. So can can we talk about that a little bit? Because yes. I think this is, like you mentioned, the first time we're actually maybe able to make yeah. any judgment on the sound. Yeah. Because the bootleg we watched was really well captured. Yeah. I love the sound design more than I love the cast recording. Hmm. Um, I think that, and this is no shade against Ghostlight Records, Ghostlight Records, who released the cast and released most cast recordings these days. Mm-hmm. They really try to capture the show as it existed on stage. Yeah. In this case, like in the case of the original Spring Awakening, I don't think they succeed. And I mm. think that this show, as it existed live, is so much more vibrant. The balance between the voices and the instruments is better. Mm. There's You hear the vocal arrangements so much clearer and there's such brilliant vocal arrangements. And because there's not many sound effects in play here, mm -hmm. everything is kind of being created from the score. Right. The sound design manages to make that feel so tactile mm -hmm. and full and yeah. grounded. Like when we've got the train starting to move, even though it's just, just, even though it's the band making that sound, it yeah. still has this boom. Yeah, that's true. That you would typically try to get out of a pre-recorded cue. Right. I can't say enough good things. Yeah. What about you? I'm, I'm, I'm talking a lot. I'm bad. No, I'm I, I, well, I don't have a ton of experience, yeah. like in knowing what to listen for. Sure. So I know when I like it yeah. and I definitely liked it so here. No question, hey? And yeah. again, like it was immersive yeah. in a way that I think like the way that the direction and choreo went so seamlessly together, it just yeah. felt like each design element that like added just made it a bit better. Absolutely. But, but like, we don't necessarily know who's responsible for what made it so good. I think it's just a functional team. Functional, there is a, yes. A collaborative team made this show, and it's beautiful to see. Yeah. What could be better? Which is the scene where they're by the um, by the river and they uh, mm -hmm. they sleep together, and all the cast members are walking around them. Yeah. Was once again like super Spring Awakening. Super. Oh yeah. Does it touch me? When oh yeah. Like um, identical. Wendla and uh, Melchior are um, mm -hmm. having sex in the barn and everyone's around them. And mm -hmm. Once again, it's so funny though because a very different vibe. Yeah. Like the opposite vibe, but the same. Or no, yeah. the opposite intention, but the same vibe. Totally. Whereas that's kind of creepy and significant. This is just beautiful and simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we liked this design, Jill. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give this design? Like eight and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I think I struggled to rate it high because Broadway budgets, like I, I see where they spent the money on people, good people and not good things necessarily. And I don't want that to take away from the mark that I give it, you yeah. know, like, so the glitz, for example, like that is not a part of this show. And I think my heart is like, do I want more from the costumes? Maybe a little bit. You but, know what it almost uh, is? It's like, I want this show and this design to just live in a smaller theater. Maybe that's Can it, you yeah. imagine how exciting it would have been if Bright Star was an off-Broadway show? Or in the round. Or in the, in like Circle like, Square or something. Staged, oh, staged in the round yeah. with like a smaller audience. Circle in the Square. Yeah, that's my own thing. I think it's like an eight and a half or a nine for me. And it's I that really tough thing it. of, do you even want to buy into that on Broadway I these know. days of... Everything has to be more is more is more. Why can't a show that's simple and beautiful exist? Yeah. And I normally am like, 
exactly and firmly in that. No, I know what you mean though. I, but who am I to second guess my rating? No, I know. Don't I stick with it. I, I, you know I what? Do know what you mean, though. I'm gonna stop. So I need to acknowledge what this yeah. piece is and how beautiful it really was in its simplicity. So therefore, nine for the design for me. Nine. Yeah. Wow! 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 There we go. <laughs> Daphne, could you please uh, dub in like air horns like we're starting a party? Thank you. Um, um, very cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the performances. We've got some players. We have a Broadway debut. Yeah, a surprising Broadway debut. A hell of a Broadway debut. A hell of one, in the sense that I did not even know it was their Broadway debut. I was surprised as well. So Carmen Cusack. Is the star of this show. This is a... Yeah. You would call this a Carmen Cusack vehicle, even. Yes. It is apparently was her Broadway debut. I had no idea. I thought she had been on Broadway for 20 years. Right. She's she's had a very respect, respectable professional career. Yes. Um, Sat in... A, um, both a tour, the tour, a tour alphabet and a Chicago alphabet yep. on Wicked for a long time. And then some other stuff on the West End. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time she's found her way to New York, which I is mean, absurd. And she was, okay, so this was five years ago. Yeah. She was 45. Good for her. That, I mean. And she emerges fully formed. She's like a. Well, yeah, I mean, the ne- she's like a great diva. That's just it. Yeah. I think the previous professional experiences are why she is so seasoned without having been on like the traditional, you know, like the actual Broadway stage. But well, she's been a workhorse. She's yes. done Alphabet for years. You know what I mean? And not on Broadway, but like on the tour where it's, right, like, where it's like the same drive thing. for 48 hours, then get up and hit the fine gravity it's actually and then drive worse. for another 48 hours. Yeah. yeah. Tours suck. Yeah, exactly. But they're also amazing. Yes. But they suck. I am madly in love with Carmen Cusack. Ooh. I thought she did fantastic work. I think... Her voice is exceptional. I think she sits in this style so well, so much so yes. that I was like, geez, is she like, the reason she doesn't have any Broadway credits, was she like a folk performer? I actually wondered about, yeah. oh, does she have a country um, album I don't know about? If she does, it's not something she makes super publicly known. She, right. It's mostly her stage career is what you can find. Right. But sings really well. And I loved her performance. I thought she's charming. I thought she was kind of self-effacing. There's like a mm-hmm. little bit of, especially when she's like, Teenage Alice, she's yeah. kind of self-conscious in a really charming way. Carmen Cusack is tens across the boards for me. Mm. And we'll get to the Tonys. I don't think she was robbed because the person who won the Tony this year was yeah. extremely well-deserved. Yes. But I think in any other year it would have gone to Carmen Cusack. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. Mm. I think, though, and I'll say the thing because I have to name you say, it. You, should, you say it. It's, it's very valid. I was we feeling really insecure about saying this. Nope, you should say it. It's but very I'm valid. But i say it. I, I disagree, but I support it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved her acting. Yeah. Love, love, yep. loved it. I thought she was um, energetic when she needed to be, grounded yep. when she needed to be. I, yeah, love, love, loved her acting. Yep. I thought she was pitchy <laughs> when she got into the like beltier stuff. It's, it's a hell of a sing. It's a big sing. And I go like, if I sang Alphaba for however many years yep. that she did, I wouldn't come out unscathed, you know? Like I might, I might dig in harder in places Also, than if I we're speculating to. that this was closing night, which it might have been. Sure. There's some emotions in play. Carmen yes. Cusack was with this for the three, all three years of development. Yeah. This was, Car- this is just as much Carmen Cusack's show 
yeah. as it is Steve Martin's and Edie Brickell's. Oh, absolutely. So there's some to actually have That's to go true. on and live that moment throughout the whole show. That is true. That's a hell of a thing to do. When we talked about how when Carolee Carmelo gets really emotionally invested in a moment, she somehow finds like the center of everything as a way to act and sing through it successfully at the same time. Absolutely. I think Carmen Cusack's performance had a little more abandon, which then kind of leaves you open to being pitchy in some ways. I think that's what is going to make Carmen Cusack great. Mm. Though I think that that kind of reckless abandon is what is going to make her an incredible star as she enters into this next part of her career. Yeah. Next thing she's doing is a um, a Tom Kit called Flying Over Sunset. That's oh, posted, great. Um, that's posted an opening date in um, the start of December 2020, uh, 2021. Fingers crossed. Fantastic. Because um, shows are posting openings now, which is very exciting. Yeah. When we start, we're going to start a Kickstarter and it's going to be <laughs> send Paul and Jill to New York to see... Shows that are probably going to close before 100 <laughs> and we're going to review them every night. Um, would you pay money to have us do this? Would you fund our vacation? Yeah. Let also, us know. <laughs> okay, David was like, I don't want to go on a trip where we just see bad musicals. Like, David. He was about it. I was like, fine, you go see whatever you want and we'll go see. Okay, well tell him to suck it up. We're taking him on a trip. Yeah. It's going to be us. And him and Allie and Daphne, and we're going to have a very nice time. I so I don't know what said, to tell like, you. <laughs> you can pick one show, you yeah. know? Like, he can pick one. He's going to have a nice time. He'll be fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> as, honestly, as long as we see uh, Music Man with Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman, I think he'll be happy. Because he likes Wolverine, he told me. That's a new thing I learned about him. And so for that reason, you think he would love to find out that Wolverine is a very accomplished so. musical theater performer? I think so. Oh, God. Okay, let's so talk about their other performances. Yeah. Other than Carmen all... Cusack. Carmen Cusack, this is very much Carmen Cusack's show, but there's a couple of other performances and most of them are really nice. Yes. The other performance I really, really like is AJ Shively, who plays Billy, who plays um, mm-hmm. Alice's uh, son, estranged son. Uh, I thought he's awesome. He's his got... voice is gorgeous. Yeah. And his... Like, his acting was just right on the money. He's another one. He's not a... This isn't his Broadway debut, I don't think, but it's close to. Mm-hmm. But he's barely done anything before this. Yeah, he did um, La Cage. That's right. So he had a bit of a break. He was probably doing a tour. Doing regional work thing. or yeah. finding his way in London or something. Mm-hmm. He does... He's the other standout for me. Yes. I really liked... Emily Paget as Lucy. Yeah. Loved her energy. Very sweet. I mm-hmm. loved Hannah Ellis, who played Margot. I agree. Absolutely. And I love her voice. Right. What an so clear, voice. clean. She was very sweet. She was funny. Yep. Yeah, honestly, the only performance I wasn't crazy about was the the guy who played the um the mayor. Yeah. Paul Nolan does very nice work. A little underwhelming, maybe. Yeah, like. like I can't. I don't have any beef with Paul Nolan. Paul Nolan <laughs> sings very well. He at, performs very well. He does a very nice job here. Mm-hmm. And yet, once again, that takes away from. I agree completely. Michael Mullerin is the name of the, the the guy who plays the mayor. Yeah, he was I, in Spider Man. Oh yes, he was. He was J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, I did not like him in this. Yeah, no, me neither. Nope. But that also might be the fact that we hated his song. He has the worst song. He um, is the worst person character. I should. But say. he's just the. Like, no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Yeah. He's like a mustache twirling evil yeah. man. I hate babies because babies are bad. So I'm going to kill a baby. It's like, He's did you just forget killer. that the son that you're, that you love so much, whose life you're trying to control was also a baby at one point. Yeah. Like he just Absolutely. forgot that. 
you know? His character does what it needs to do. It's not so bad that it like yeah. takes me out and I'm like, I'm not enjoying this anymore. But that's also because other than the specific things he has to do to move the action forward, yeah. he doesn't really play a part in the story. Right. If you're listening closely, you might have realized by now that I have not made mention of a single review of this show. Which is very unusual for this podcast. It is very unusual because I find reviews to be helpful in contextualizing why a show might have closed early. I did not really find uh, any strong opinions, good or bad, from in any of the reviews that I read. So Charles Isherwood, who has characteristically been pretty harsh, was like soft yeah. <laughs> in his in his New York Times review. It was almost as if he did not want to upset Steve Martin. It was like he yeah. wanted to be friends with him. And so he's like, oh, I shouldn't say anything bad. Like, yeah. I don't know. It just, it all felt really like, oh, that's a nice musical. Which again, not wrong. But I just expect maybe stronger opinions. Could I hypothesize as well that it's just exciting at this point in Broadway's mm. history to have a... An original musical? Yeah. On Broadway? It's very, yeah. That's Critics should just want to be like, this is, do more of this, please. Do yeah. this. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> Support. Bright yeah. star. That very well could be it too. Like, and I guess at this time, there were very few bluegrass folk musicals. Like, I mean, even now. I would almost say maybe did Bright Star pave the way for the slightly more accessible Come From Away? Which came right yeah. after it, you know? And Hadestown is out of a folk album originally. Town is very much that vibe. Yeah, but it did change a lot. Like, yeah. it's changed a lot um, in terms of its aesthetic and I sound. I think Bright Star died so that those two very brilliant <laughs> musicals can live. Yeah. Yeah. Aw. You almost wonder if they did it more harm than good, though, because it's like... That is true. Uh, either pan it like you do with, like, Spider-Man or something. Yep. Or... Bright star is brilliant. Carmen Cusack shines so bright. Yeah. And get people in there, you know? Totally. Well, with that said. Wait. Oh, the ensemble was awesome. Great singing. Fantastic work. Mm -hmm. Ensemble. I know we always shout out the ensemble, but this ensemble especially, it very much has that, the same feeling you get from Come From Away, Mm -hmm. where this ensemble has been directed and they took that direction. Yep. This ensemble is getting up every night and they're like, we know how we contribute to this story. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, it's like so they, clear. They are very, it is very clear to them what part they are playing. And yep. it's really beautiful to see. Yep, I love it. Jeez, out of 10, uh, 10 playbills. <sighs> this show's fallen high so far. I know. Whoa, I whoa. think nine and a half for For performing nine and a half. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd say nine. I just like appreciated everyone a lot except the mayor and then yeah. sometimes the pitchy moments. Yeah. Woo. Wow. Bright Star has gotten great ratings from us so far. Yep. Why didn't it do so well? Well, let's talk about the Tonys. That's right, everyone. It was that Tony year. It was the year of Hamilton. It was the year of Tuck Everlasting, American Psycho, Waitress. Um, And then, of course, that was the year of the the revivals, the great revivals. This was the 70th annual Tony Awards. And yes, it's the year with the a bunch of revivals. Color Purple, She Loves Me. Fiddler. Oh, yes. And Deaf West Spring Awakening. Yes, 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 yes. There are so many incredible players. Yeah. Best musical is Hamilton, Bright Star, School of Rock, 
shuffle along in Waitress. That's right. So there's another one we get to do. Cynthia Erivo takes Best Actress from Carmen Cusack. This is what I was referring to before. It's yep. um, hard to argue it. Cynthia Erivo so, super yeah. deserves it. So amazing. Um, it's amazing. A- anyone on this list could have taken it any other year. Yep. You got, besides Cynthia Erivo, you have Lauren Benanti from yes. she Lo- Doing She Loves Me. Um, you have Carmen Cusack, you've got Jesse Mueller doing Waitress. Oh, right. And you've got Philippa Sue doing Hamilton. Oh, right. Like, oh, my gosh. What? It's just wild, that yeah. category. So there were five nominations total for Five nominations Star. total. And to be clear, out of all of those, I think Cynthia Erivo does deserve it. Yes. But that's incredible competition. Oh, that's absolutely. That's absurd. Yeah. So, yes, they were nominated for five. So, of course, Best Actress, Best Musical, Best Book. Best score and best original orchestrations, I think. Best yeah. orchestrations. Yeah. Remember that time that Leslie Odom Jr. took the Tony from Lynn Manuel for Hamilton? And I mean Yeah, not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like I love Love him I, to death. Just as a force of nature. Yeah, but. like I like Lynn Manuel Miranda yeah. as a as a writer, mm-hmm. as a creative. I think as I a just, performer, his natural charisma yeah. is very charming to watch. He's real charming in um, in In Heights. Oh, yeah. Adorable. But I just... Yeah, Leslie Odom Jr. was just remarkable in that show. Everyone, I've tried to talk about the In the Heights movie twice on this podcast now. Producer Daphne keeps on cutting it out because she believes it will date the podcast. So I'm going to make one more attempt. Did you like the In the Heights movie? Text us, please. Yeah, let me know. Did you cry for 50% of it like I did? Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So yeah, that that was that Tony Crazy Tony Awards. (laughs) So the the, narr- the narrative that I choose to believe here, because yeah. this is a nice show. I like this show. There's, we both like this show. There's no question of that at this mm-hmm. point. The narrative that it seems like unfolded is this is a an original musical with no star power other than Steve Martin yep. writing it, but Steve mm-hmm. Martin's not appearing in it. Yep. Well, or so we thought. Or so we no, thought. Yep, totally. <laughs> but yes. So it has a hard time finding its footing mm-hmm. on Broadway. Steve Martin and Edie Brickell and Paul Simon see, oh man, we've spent three years of our lives on this earth. Steve and uh, Edie have, and Paul's Mm -hmm. kind of watched this happen, presumably. We're not even making enough money to stay open, but let's supplement whatever money we're making with our own money. They end up spending like millions of dollars. I've heard the quote, to keep it open until Tony's in the hopes that, like basically in the hopes that Carmen Cusack will take best uh, best actress, I think, because there's no way they were taking best musical. No. Has that ever worked? Because, like, in all of the conversations we've had surrounding the Tonys, I kind of get the feeling that the, like, whole, oh, well, we'll see how many Tonys we get nominated for, how many we win, and, like... It's hard to say because we don't talk about the musicals that it worked for. That's Like, we don't get to talk about them. That's a good point. I just... Has it ever happened? Has it... Like, does anyone... I mean, I'd love to hear from you if you know of times where it's actually been successful as a marketing ploy, like using the Tonys to leverage your sales. Am I crazy? Did it work for Natasha Pierre before um, before the Mandy Patinkin controversy shut them down? Yeah. Because it seems like we're always talking about musicals that tried that gambit (laughs) and didn't quite make it. Yeah. Although, okay, Bright Star won the Grammy for yeah. music theater album or something. So that helped the album sales, That helps probably. the al- album. And yeah. then they also won a drama desk for, the, for Outstanding Music. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were awards, but in terms of the ones that actually would help ticket sales. We've done a lot of talking on this podcast about what the Tonys mean. 
as far as helping shows survive Mm -hmm. versus what they mean as the actual signifier of like a recognition. Right. And from a recognition point of view, Hamilton deserves what it got. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not yeah. here to argue that Hamilton is devastatingly good. Yes. Easy to lose track of it now because it's become so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Hamilton is absurd. Yeah. From a help live performance survive perspective. Right. Like it almost would have been nice if Hamilton didn't compete. Right. Because they didn't need it. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, Hamilton's yeah, yeah, the yeah. best musical band. We all know we that. We all know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just acknowledge that at the top. Yeah. Hamilton gets special honorary everything Tony. Right. Now besides them, who won this year? You know what I mean? <laughs> Knowing that Hamilton devastated everything. We've acknowledged that. Hamilton, you're the best. Great work. You've transcended musical theater and pop culture. Great work. (laughs) Now, besides that, who wins? You know what I mean? Is almost what you want to see. But then also, it's great for Hamilton to get that recognition. That's so funny. So that's my my take on what happened to Bright Star. Okay. Should (laughs) Bright Star be a musical, Paul? Yeah. Heck yeah. We need more musicals like this. I want it all. What a sweet musical. I found myself wishing we had done this show for our Valentine's Day special. What a sweet love story this is. I prefer the slasher take we took. Right. (laughs) Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Um, What about you? Should this be a musical? Absolutely. Absolutely. 110%. I just might encourage a bit of lyric change. There was for for all the accolades we gave to um, Steve Martin and Edie Brickle for not getting like Tom Kitt on to help them out. Right. Maybe Tom Kitt should have... Like, yeah. bring in Tom Kitt to do it right, you know? Yeah, like, I think just a little bit yeah. of encouragement. He'll be respectful. He'll do the good work. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that said, it seems pretty obvious based on our ratings, but is this a total flop? Is this a secret bop? Or is this so bad we have to make it stop? This production was... Oh, no, this is a bop. This it's, is a bop. It's absolutely a it's bop. It's a total bop. Bright Star is a secret bop. I wish... I don't know where it could exist, even in our... In the region, Canadian regional landscape, but I wish it could. I'd love to do it. It feels like East Coast to me. It's yeah. too because I think, especially for a bluegrass musical, it could exist in Central Canada very oh, yeah. well. Yeah, I absolutely. Think... Like, I'm just thinking about all the people we know that I would love to watch play this music. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to see this play in Saskatchewan, though? Yeah. Which has such a hard time finding any kind of theatrical success, yeah. significance of theatrical success. That's true. I would love to see this play in Central Canada, in the prairie somewhere. I don't know if it would, but I'd love to see it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Bright Star. Please check it out. It's worth checking out. It'll put you in a good mood for the summer. It'll put you in a good mood for the potential of live performance coming back. Yeah. Speaking of live performance coming back, things are opening up again. It's very exciting. And for that reason as well, Jill and I are going to take the rest of the summer off, we think. It's been, we've been doing this podcast for a year now with virtually no breaks. And you've maybe noticed things are slowing down a little bit. Um, I say Jill and I. Jill and I and producer Daph have been doing this show for a year now with no breaks. And you might have noticed things are slowing down a bit. This is because, quite frankly, it's tiring to do a podcast. Who knew? It's a lot yeah. of work trying to produce things that are, um, that are exciting for our audience to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and also other things are coming up. Various other things in our career are yeah. coming back. Does this mean this is the end of Monkeys and Playbills? Hell no! No way! Not a chance! (laughs) But I think we're going to take a break until September at the very least. Mm -hmm. If you have anything that you would (laughs) like to chat about, please don't hesitate to continue to reach out to us through Instagram at Monkeys and Playbills Pod finally remembered our Instagram handle. Uh, We also have Facebook. We love your DMs. Please continue to 
to have these conversations with us because we just love it. We love to hear from you. So thank you all so much for being so supportive through this first season of Monkeys and Playbills. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, send us suggestions, thoughts, feelings, and we'll see you back in September for season two, season three, whatever we want to call it. <laughs> Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with us all this time. We can't wait to see you all again back in September with Season Question Mark. <laughs>